as labels for self-directed love on the one hand and disinterested love of others for their own sake on the other. This use of the words goes back to a book published in 1936. Now I should be able to forward the PowerPoint, but it doesn't work. Yes, a book published in 1936 by a Swedish theologian named Anders Nygren. Nygren, he was a Lutheran bishop, ecumenist and famous theologian. And his book with the title Agape and Eros had a profound impact on the modern debate about the nature of love in general and Christian love in particular. In this book, Nygren argues that true Christian understanding of love, which he labels agape, is sharply opposed to the Hellenistic conception of love that dominated the world into which Christianity was born. This Hellenistic conception of love is what Nygren calls eros. Uh, agape, says Nygren, is totally other-directed and self-sacrificial. It is a love that merely gives and does not seek its own, while eros is essentially a self-centered quest for happiness. In its lower forms, Eros expresses itself as a bodily or sexual desire, and hence our name, erotic love. But in its higher forms, Eros is, the, is a lofty desire for intellectual fulfillment and bliss. In Plato, <clears throat> Eros represents a striving to see the very form of beauty, which resides in the world of ideas, accessible only to the mind's eye. According to Nygren's telling of the history of Christian thought, the church fathers failed to properly distinguish between uh, true Christian love, agape, and eros, with the result that the two understandings of love were combined or mixed, and the purity of agape compromised. Influential theologians like St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas are both guilty of confusing eros and agape, according to Nygren, while Luther is the first Christian thinker who clearly sees their irreconcilability and tries to purify the Christian understanding of love from any association with the egocentric eros. According to Nygren, Luther has expressed the opposition between agape and eros with incomparable clarity and thereby revealed that, quote, the whole of Catholic doctrine of love displays an egocentric perversion, unquote. So this book by Nygren got a lot of attention and since, since its publication, it has become common to think about love in terms of the distinction between Eros and Agape or self-centered and other directed love. Even many thinkers who have been critical of Nygren's way of pitting Agape against Eros have found the distinction itself as useful as an analytical tool that can capture two different aspects of love. And this is how I'm going to use Nygren's terms Eros and Agape in this talk, where I will address the perennial problem actualized by Nygren's book, namely, how should Christians view the relationship between self-love and love of others for their own sake? Is Nygren right that true Christian love has no reference to self at all and should be wholly disinterested and disconnected from any pursuit of happiness? Or is there a way to think about love that reconciles self-love with love for others for their own sake. The French Jesuit Pierre Rousselot called this question the problem of love, and it is this problem that I will now address. The problem of love confronts us already in the pages of the Bible. In the New Testament, Christ's self-sacrificial love manifested on the cross is portrayed as a role model, of course, for how Christians in general should love. 
Saint Paul writes, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. On the other hand, Jesus also says that the sacrifices we make in this life will be rewarded in heaven. Go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have a treasure in heaven. This seems to imply that the believer may do good deeds with his own happiness in mind. The question of the relationship between disinterested and interested love also occupied the church fathers. Some church fathers say that love must be totally forgetful of self. John Chrysostom, for example, goes so far as to say that he who loves ought so to love that if he were asked even for his soul and it were possible, he would not refuse it. Thereby implying that the lover should be prepared to sacrifice even his own salvation for the sake of others. Other church fathers seem to see no problem if a Christian's primary motivation for doing good deeds is his own heavenly happiness. Saint Cyprianos, for example, tells the believer to, quote, have no fear when you bestow an alms. You are storing up for yourself a good reward for the day of necessity, for alms deliver from death. Alms provide a great confidence for all who do it before the Most High God, unquote. Is there a coherent theory of Christian love that can reconcile a proper self-love with love of others for their own sake? In other words, can Eros and Agape be harmoniously united? Or is Nygren right that they are inherently opposed? Today, many theologians think that Nygren was wrong to exclude Eros and self-love from Christian love. They hold that while Christian love is giving and sacrificial, it also essentially contains a desire for beauty, goodness, and happiness. According to Benedict XVI, the former Pope, for example, Christianity does not at all oppose Eros, but purifies it. Benedict writes, Eros and Agape can never be completely separated. The more the two in the different aspects find a proper unity in the one reality of love, the more the true nature of love in general is realized. Even if Eros is at first mainly covetous and ascending, a fascination for the great promise of happiness, in drawing near to the other, it is less and less concerned with itself, increasingly seeks the happiness of the other. The element of agape thus enters into this love. Many Protestant thinkers have also come to the same conclusion, such as C.S. Lewis, who argues that gift love, which is Lewis's own name for agape, and need love, which is his name for eros, are both necessary components of healthy human love. This becomes especially clear, according to Lewis, in the case of love for God. Lewis writes, it would be a bold and silly creature that came before its creator with the boast, I'm no beggar, I love you disinterestedly. A creature who feels no need for God as a source of happiness uh, is a very defective lover of God. However, even if we accept that both Eros and Agape are necessary aspects of Christian love, the question remains how they are related to each other and what keeps them together. Is one aspect more fundamental than the other? And in that case, which one? Self-love or love of others? Or do both aspects emerge from a common principle? One way of explaining how self-love and love of others can be harmoniously held together is suggested by Aristotle. According to him, the happy person is the virtuous person. That is the one who has a good moral character. 
since we acquire a good moral character by loving and doing good to others, there is no contradiction between true self-love and love of others. It is precisely by loving others for their own sake and doing good to them that we perfect ourselves in virtue and hence become truly happy. Although this is a good explanation in my view, it does not answer all questions. We may still ask why virtue requires that we love others for their own sake. Why is not self-love sufficient for moral perfection? Moreover, Aristotle's view can be accused of reducing love of others to self-love. The good man, says Aristotle, is ready to lose money on condition that his friends get more. For the friend gets money, but he himself gains fineness of character, so he assigns to himself the greater good. This can seem to mean that we, in the final analysis, do not love others for their own sake, but for the sake of gaining fineness of character, which means that we love others in order to become more virtuous and hence happy ourselves. Since Aristotle's solution to the problem of love leaves some questions unanswered, it would be desirable to find a deeper explanation of why there is no competition between love of self and, and love of others. In other words, how Eros and Agape fit together. I will no, now argue that such an explanation can be found in the thought of Thomas Aquinas. In order to understand Aquinas's explanation, we need first to look at Aquinas's general theory of love. So according to Aquinas, love is the basic principle or cause behind any movement towards an end. It is love that moves humans to desire and strive for things, and love is therefore something pertaining to the appetite. What does Aquinas mean by appetite? An appetite is an inclination or attraction towards something good or away from something evil. Humans have a bodily or sensitive appetite, but also an intellectual or rational appetite, which we call the will. The will is a power that moves humans towards what the intellect judges to be good, while sensitive appetites such as hunger incline us towards what the senses, perceives, the senses perceive as good and away from what the senses perceive as evil. Now, love and desire are closely related but distinct phenomena, according to Aquinas. Love is the first change wrought in the appetite by the appetible object, and is nothing else than a complacency, complacentia, in that object. By complacentia, Aquinas means a sense of affinity for the object, a sense that the object is good and fitting for the one who loves it. This affective affinity for an object causes the lover to desire it when it is absent and to enjoy the object when it is present. Desire and joy are hence effects of love. Since we have both sensitive and intellectual appetites, Aquinas distinguishes between sensitive and intellectual love. Sensitive love is not, not under the control of free will except indirectly, and this kind of love is simply the sensual attraction that we have towards certain bodily goods. Intellectual love, on the other hand, exists in the will, which is the rational appetite. Intellectual love is always caused by the intellect's prior judgment that a certain object is fitting convenience to the lover. What exactly does it mean that something is fitting? It means, according to Aquinas, that there is some kind of likeness between the object of love and the lover. Likeness is hence what causes love to arise. 
However, different kinds of likeness give, different, give rise to two different kinds of love. Aquinas here distinguishes between love of concupiscence, amor concupiscentiae, and love of friendship, amor amicitiae. Love of concupiscence arises as a result of potential likeness. That is, when we encounter something that we do not actually have, but could potentially have, and that would promote our well-being or perfect us in some way. For example, if I'm starving, I need nourishment, which is to be found in bread, which I therefore love with the love of concupiscence. Actual likeness, on the other hand, such as the likeness between all of us who share the form of humanity, or between people who have a similar virtuous character can cause love or friendship, amor amicitiae, to arise. This is because sharing in the same form creates or constitutes a union between people and makes it possible for them to identify with one another. For the very fact, writes Aquinas, that two men are alike, having as it were one form, makes them to be in a manner one in that form. Love of friendship is based on a perception of some likeness or oneness with another, and this kind of love always has a person as its object. The lover's sense of being one with the beloved makes him regard her good or well-being as his own. Aquinas writes, when a man loves another with the love of friendship, he wills good to him just as he wills good to himself. Wherefore, he appreh apprehends him as his other self, insofar to wit as he wills good to him as to himself." Unquote. It is very important to note here that love of concupiscence and love of friendship cannot be understood as two separate phenomena. Instead, we should think of them as two different aspects of one and the same love, aspects that always go together and logically presuppose each other. When I love some good with the love of concupiscence, I always desire it for somebody's sake. For example, when I'm hungry, I desire the good of food because it's potential nourishment for me. However, the person for whose sake I desire, desire some good can also be some other person than myself. If this is the case, then I do not love that person with the love of concupiscence, but with the love of friendship. This means that I do not love her for the sake of something or somebody else, like I do when I love the food. But instead, I love her for her own sake as something that is good in itself. Aquinas explains the relation between love of concupiscence and love of friendship thus. The movement of love has a twofold tendency towards the good which a man wishes to somebody, to himself or to another, and towards that which he wishes some good, that is, towards the person, either oneself or another. The person whom one wishes good to is loved with the love of friendship, and the good that one wishes for him or her is loved with the love of concupiscence. Now, it might seem strange to talk about having love of friendship for oneself, but the key to understanding Aquinas here is to remember that love is always based on some kind, some kind of oneness or union between lover and beloved. The metaphysical union that the person has with himself, or more properly speaking, the unity that the person constitutes, is stronger and more basic than the union one can have with some other human being in virtue of some similarity, for example. Aquinas writes, a man is one with himself, which is more than being united to another, and 
properly speaking, a man is not a friend of himself, but something more than a friend. In order to clarify Aquinas' account of love, it might be useful to consider the following example. If a man loves a woman merely because she gives him something, for example, pleasant experiences or satisfies some of his needs, then he does not love her with the love of friendship, but rather with the love of concupiscence. Love of friendship means to will the good of somebody for her own sake, in the same way as one wills one's own good. A man wills his own good because he identifies with himself, so to speak, or constitutes a unity with himself, and not because he considers himself useful or desirable for some other end. In a similar way, if a man loves a woman with the love of friendship, then he identifies with her, so to speak, and regards her like, like his own self as something that is good simply and for itself. As Anthony Flood summarizes Aquinas' view, in the love of friendship, a person seeks the personhood of the other as the proper object of that love. But what exactly does this mean to love the personhood of somebody? Aquinas explains this in terms of a distinction between substantial and accidental goods. Love tends toward something in a twofold manner, writes Aquinas. First, as toward a substantial good, which occurs when we love something such that we will good for it. As for example, we love a man willing his good. Second, love tends toward something as toward an accidental good. As for example, we love virtue, not for the reason that we wish it good, but for the reason that by it we are good. Now, some give the first mood of love the name Amor Amicitia, love of friendship, by the second Amor Concupiscentia. So let me dwell a little bit on Aquinas' ex explanation here. What he says is that since love is an act of the appetite, or is an example of an appetite, love is always of goods. It is an inclination towards a thing under the ratio boni, under the aspect of good. Goods, moreover, are of two basic metaphysical kinds, namely substantial and accidental goods. When I love a person as such, my love is tending towards the substance or suppositum of the person as something that is good in itself. To love a person in this way entails to see her as a point of arrival for goods, and hence to desire her flourishing and perfection for her own sake. Accidental goods, on the other hand, such as virtue, knowledge, or pleasure, are secondary objects of love, things that are loved with the love of concupiscence for the sake of a substantial good, namely a person. Hence, if we love a person merely because he or she can contribute to our own perfection or flourishing in some respects, it's not that person considered as a substance or suppositum whom I love, but only the accidental goods she can provide me with. Okay, so before we come to Aquinas' solution to the problem of love, I must say something about the relation between love and unity or union. We have seen that union with another is a cause of love for Aquinas, but there are different kinds of union, and some kinds are effects rather than causes of love. The kind of union that causes love is metaphysical union either a substantial union, which is a type of union that the person has with himself and that causes him to love himself, or a union of likeness that the person can have with others and that may cause him to love them. 
There is, however, also a second kind of union, namely, besides metaphysical union, namely the kind that love itself constitutes. This is a union according to the bond of affection, and it comes into being because love makes a lover go out from himself and dwell effectively in his effect, by his affections in the beloved. Aquinas describes what happens here as ecstasy, which means standing outside of oneself. Ecstasy pertains only to love of friendship. In the love of concupiscence, the lover's affection also goes out towards an external object, but only to appropriate this object for the self's sake, so that the affection in effect returns to the lover. In ecstatic love, on the other hand, that is love of friendship, the lover's affection does not return in this way, but remains in the beloved. This is why the lover is said to stand outside of himself. There is also a third kind of union, besides metaphysical union and the union that love itself constitutes, and Aquinas calls this real union or the union of possession. This is achieved when the lovers are physically present to each other and enjoy each other's company. Love is the efficient cause of such real union because it, quote, moves the lover to desire and seek the presence of the beloved, unquote, as Aquinas says. Okay, now when I recounted some features of Aquinas' general theory of love, it's time to see if it contains a solution to the problem of love. Can Aquinas explain why, why there is no competition between self-love and love of others, or eros and agatha? Well, we have seen that for Aquinas, love of friendship presupposes that lover and beloved are united in some way. We love our friends because we share some form or likeness with them. This is what makes it possible for us to identify with them and to regard them as other selves. It is hence clear that for Aquinas, all love has a reference to self. In fact, Aquinas explicitly says that we can only love something insofar it is our good. This follows from the fact that love for Aquinas is an appetitive phenomenon, something that pertains to the appetite. He writes, the very relation or adaptation of the appetite towards something as toward its own good is called love. Now Anders Nygren, the Swedish theologian I started with, takes what Aquinas says here as a confirmation that Aquinas' view of love has strayed far from the Christian idea of agape which is a love that does not seek its own. The very fact that Aquinas lo locates love in the appetite reveals, according to Nygren, that Aquinas thinks of love as a desire to acquire and possess. This is precisely what Nygren calls eros. Nygren acknowledges, of course, that Aquinas also talks about love of friendship, which is, which is supposed to be a non-acquisitive love by which friends are loved for their own sake. However, Nygren sees a fundamental tension between this aspect of Aquinas' thought and his starting point, which is the idea of acquisitive love or eros. Aquinas' appeal to the idea of friendship love thus threatens the coherence and unity of his doctrine of love. Logically, there is no room for non-acquisitive love within Aquinas' eros-infested account, according to Nygren. 
Nygren, however, misunderstands Aquinas' theory of love. We can begin to see this if we rec rec <coughs> recall that acquisitive love, what Aquinas calls amor concupiscentia, cannot exist alone without being rooted in some prior amor amicitia, love of friendship. The very idea of acquisitive love presupposes a subject for whose sake goods are desired, and love's relationship to this subject must be different from its relationship to the goods that it wants to acquire. For example, if I want to acquire riches for my own sake, it follows that I love myself, but of course I do not want to acquire myself in the way I wish to acquire the riches. My love for myself must therefore be a non-acquisitive love that simply affirms the self's goodness without any desire to exploit it for somebody's sake. So we must now ask what the necessary conditions for non-acquisitive love are. What, what is it that makes such love possible? The best way to find out is to continue to study self-love because everybody must admit that a person can love himself with non-acquisitive love, as I have said. But why is this the case? The answer presumably is that in the case of self-love, the subject and the object of love are one and the same thing. It is, in other words, unity between lover and beloved that enables non-acquisitive love. Not even the most depraved person sees his own self as something to be used for some other purpose, but rather as an end in itself. And the reason why he can love himself in this way is because he is one with himself. Now, Aquinas' crucial insight is that love is an analogical concept, is that unity is an analogical concept. Things can be one in different ways and to different degrees, which means that unity is compatible with distinction and difference. Oneness in some respect is compatible with otherness in other respects. Take, for example, two numerically distinct things that share the same form, for example, two human beings. They are the same with respect to their form, humanity, and not the same with respect to their matter or individuality. Or take a society of human beings. It constitutes a unity in virtue of certain relationships between the individuals that constitute it, Numerically distinct things can, in other words, be united in virtue of sharing the same form or by being part of a larger whole or totality. Against the background of this analogical character of the concept of unity, we can reason as follows. Everybody must admit, admit that actual numerical unity between lover and beloved makes possible a non-acquisitive love. We all love ourselves non-acquisitively and for our own sake. However, what reason do we have to believe that numerical unity is the only kind of unity that can elicit non-acquisitive love? Why could not formal unity, likeness, provide the necessary condition for this kind of love as well? Since unity is an analogical concept, it seems that Aquinas can very plausibly argue that non-acquisitive love or love of friendship is possible whenever people are united or one in some respect. For example, I can love my family because we are united by a family bond, and I can even love all people because we are one in the form of humanity. So in response to this, Nygren could refine his critique. He could argue that the person who loves 
another only because she is united to himself, in reality loves only himself. In other words, the beloved becomes an object of love because she is seen as incorporated into the lover's own identity or self. If this is the case, it seems that Aquinas can rightly be accused of reducing love of others to love of self. Perhaps this accusation contains some truth with respect to how Aquinas describes the love that parents have for their children. Aquinas writes, parents love their children as being parts of themselves. However, when it comes to love between friends, Aquinas sees things differently. Friends do not regard each other as part of themselves. Instead, their love is based on the fact that they share in something common, such as a common form as described earlier. To see oneself as united with another person in this way is not to see the other as a part of oneself. Instead, it's wholly compatible with recognizing the other's otherness. Just because two people are one in some respect, they do not become one in all respects. The most important kind of unity, of course, is the unity or union that love itself constitutes. This union makes the lover see the beloved as another self, which means that he starts to regard the beloved's good as equally important or almost so as his own. This, however, does not mean that the lover ceases to view the beloved's good as being hers rather than his. We might say that the beloved's good in one sense becomes the lover's own in virtue of the union of love between the two. In another sense, however, it remains the beloved's good in virtue of being located in her, so to speak, rather than in the lover. As David Gallagher explains, a person can be willing his own good in willing the good for the other and willing it precisely as being in the other. The fact that the union of love does not obliterate the distinction between lovers is the reason why Aquinas describes love in terms of ecstasy, as I recounted earlier. The lovers going out to the beloved in order to remain there in his affections is what creates the union of love. But since love of friendship does not strive to assimilate the thing loved to the lover as love of concupiscence does, the otherness of the beloved remains. If the unity of love had meant that the beloved somehow ceases to have her own distinct identity and instead becomes a part of the lover, then the lover would not need to go out from himself in order to dwell in the beloved. Instead, he could stay in himself and find the beloved there, so to speak. Ecstasy, hence, creates union, but is the very opposite of self-centeredness, since it means to give oneself to another, as Aquinas puts it. To those whom we love with the love of friendship, we are related as to ourselves, communicating ourselves to them in some way. This means that something that is and remains truly other than the lover becomes equally important to him as his own self, or at least almost so. This is why the beloved does not become, for Aquinas, like a part of the self, but like an other self. So we are now in a position to understand what Aquinas means when he says that we can only love something, quote, insofar it is our own good. What he means is that we can only love something insofar as we see ourselves as in some way united to it. 
However, since unity is an analogical notion, we can see ourselves as being united to things that are truly other than us, such as other persons with their own distinct identities. Loving only what is, one is united to is not the same thing as loving only oneself. There is still something that remains to be explained, however. On the basis of biblical teaching, Christians hold that we should love God more than we love ourselves. This seems to be an undeniable Christian principle, but it raises the following question. If we love others because we are united to them and therefore regard them as other selves, as Aquinas argues, how can it be possible to love something more than oneself? One conceivable solution to this problem would be to concede that it's naturally impossible for humans to love God more than self, but that supernatural grace can accomplish this anyway as a kind of miracle. But this is not the solution that St. Thomas chooses. For Aquinas, grace builds on nature, and if it is not natural for humans to love God more than themselves, then grace would have to go against the grain of our nature. Aquinas therefore believes that there must be a way of accounting for how love of God above self is possible in terms of natural principles. Of course, our nature as it presently exists is damaged by the fall of Adam. So Aquinas acknowledges that post-fall humans cannot love God more than self without the help of infused supernatural grace. In its undamaged or integral state, however, human nature would be capable of such love. This means that grace does not go against the grain of nature when it enables us to love God more than ourselves. Instead, grace restores and elevates our natural love. So how is, how is it possible for humans and other rational agents to love God more than self without violating natural principles? Aquinas addresses this question at a number of places, and there has been quite a bit of controversy about how his answer or answers should be interpreted. So here I will only present one interpretation that I think is reasonable and that explains how love of God about self is naturally impossible. In order to understand Aquinas' explanation, I need first to say some words about the concept of participation. What is participation? Let us consider the relation between a portrait and the person it depicts. What is it that makes a particular painting a portrait of, for example, Napoleon? It is, of course, the fact that the painting has a likeness to Napoleon. By virtue of this likeness, we can say that the portrait participates in Napoleon's visual appearance. Now, in a similar way, Aquinas thinks that all creative things have their being and goodness by participating in God, who is universal being and goodness. This means that things are only good to the extent that they reflect something of God's goodness in the same way as a portrait is only a portrait of Napoleon by reflecting something of his likeness. Things, therefore, do not have their goodness of themselves, but only by participation in God, who is goodness itself. Okay, let us now look at Aquinas' explanation of the natural love of God above self. The starting point of Aquinas' reasoning is the fact that everybody naturally loves his own good. 
goodness that is the goodness present in his own person the goodness that constitutes his own person because everybody is united to his own goodness to his own person for Aquinas as we have seen unity is what makes love possible however every human person is even more united to God than he is to his own goodness since a person's own goodness is nothing but a participation in God who is goodness itself or the universal good. This means that my goodness is in a sense more present in God than it is in me in the same way that Napoleon's likeness is more present in Napoleon himself than in a painted portrait of him. Hence, if it is natural for me to love my own goodness as it is present in me, it is even more natural for me to love my goodness as it is more fully present in God, and hence to love God above self, more than myself. In Aquinas' words, since God is the universal good, and under this good both man and angel and all creatures are comprised, because every creature with regard to its entire being naturally belongs to God, it follows that from natural love, angel and man alike love God before themselves and with a greater love. The French philosopher Etienne Gilson expresses the same point in a slightly different way. He writes, to love any good whatsoever is always to love its resemblance to the divine goodness. And since it is this resemblance to God that makes this good to be a good, we can say that what is loved in it is the sovereign good that is God. In other words, it is impossible to love the image one's own self without at the same time loving the original God. And if we know, as we do know, that the image is only an image, it is impossible to love it without preferring the original. We can deepen our understanding of this further if we consider the fact that God is not only the source, source of our own goodness, but also of our own unity. Unity, as we have seen, is what accounts for love. We love what we are one with in some sense. Now, a human person is constituted as a unified subject or being by participating in God, who is being itself. It follows from this that I am, in a sense, more united with God than I am with myself, since God is the ontological ground and source of my very unity. As St. Augustine says, God is closer to me than I am to myself. Since the unity I have with myself is what causes me to love myself, and since I'm more united to God than I am to myself, it follows that it is natural for me to love God more than myself. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this natural ordering of the will towards loving God more than self has been distorted by sin, so that we now tend to love ourselves more than God. Although this is an unnatural state of affairs, the fact remains that we now need God's healing grace in order to be able to love God in the proper way. But grace not only heals our nature, it also elevates it so that we become capable of having a more intimate relationship with God, a relationship of love that goes beyond what we are naturally capable of. Aquinas calls this kind of love caritas, charity, and charity is supernatural love. In order to get a complete picture of Aquinas' solution to the problem of love, 
I must briefly say some words about Aquinas' teaching on charity and grace. Habitual grace for Aquinas is an infused gift that grants us a fuller participation in God's divine life than we are naturally capable of. We are created in the image of God, but grace elevates this natural image in us so that we become more like God and can partake of his inner Trinitarian life. This is why Aquinas describes grace as supernatural. Grace gives us a second nature, you might say, that makes us capable of a greater intimacy with God. Grace is infused by God into the essence of the soul, and from grace flows the theological virtues faith, hope, and charity that perfect the soul's faculties of intellect and will by directing, directing them towards God as our ultimate end. Faith perfects the intellect by giving it knowledge of God and hope and charity perfect the will by orienting it towards loving intimacy with God. In the present context, our focus is charity, caritas, which Aquinas defines as a certain friendship amicitia of the human person for God. This definition draws, draws on the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but friends. According to Aquinas' understanding of friendship in general, which he takes from Aristotle, friendships always involve a mutual love that is based on some perceived likeness or commonality between the friends. With respect to God, however, the difference between our nature and God's nature means that a natural basis for friendship relations is lacking. Friendship with God therefore requires that God supplies the necessary commonality by communicating his divine life to us by grace. Aquinas writes, since there is a communication between man and God inasmuch as he communicates his happiness to us, some kind of friendship must needs be based on this same communion, communication. The love which is based on this communication is charity. Hence it is clear that charity is the friendship of the human person for God. God's communication of his own life to believers also provides the basis for supernatural neighbor love since all humans who receive grace are fellow sharers in the divine life. If they love the divine life and goodness as it is present in God and in themselves, they also have reason to love with charity the same goodness as it is present in other humans and things. Since even enemies of God are potential sharers in the divine life, they too could should be loved with charity. Okay, we have seen that natural love and supernatural love or charity follow the same basic principles according to Aquinas. The fundamental principle is that love is an inclination or attraction towards the good insofar as it is the lover's own good. Love always has a reference to the lover's self. And this is why Nygren, as we remember, thinks that Aquinas' account of love is egocentric. As we have seen, however, Nygren's judgment is based on a misunderstanding of uh, what it means for something to be the lover's own good. What Aquinas means is that any good that a person loves must somehow be united to that person. 
and can therefore be seen as the person's own good in an analogical sense. The relevant kind of union can exist either on the natural or the supernatural level. On the natural level, all human beings are united by sharing the form of humanity, and this makes it possible for any one human to love another for the other's own sake as an other self. Moreover, since every good that we love in ourselves and in others is merely a resemblance or likeness of God's goodness, we have reason to love God more than ourselves. On the supernatural level, the same principles are at work. What unites humans with God and each other on this level is actual or potential participation in God to a degree that goes beyond what occurs on the natural level. By the gift of grace, we become partakers of God's inner Trinitarian life and the actual or potential communication of this life to all humans unites us to God and to each other, which makes it possible for, for us to love all with charity. This means that Aquinas' theory of love reconciles eros and agape, or self-love and love of others for their own sake. Love is erotic, according to Aquinas, because it seeks its own good. However, love is also agapeic, since the lover's own good can be a good that is common to all and primar primarily found in God. This is why we can love other humans for their own sake, that is, for the sake of the goodness present in them, and why we can love God above everything else as the source of every good. This perspective also explains why we become perfected in virtue and happy by loving others and doing good to them, as Aristotle and the whole Christian tradition also teaches. If it is true, as Aquinas argues, that we are in fact united to all humans by being fellow sharers in God's goodness, it follows that we do not really promote our own goodness, the goodness united to us unless we promote this same goodness when it is found in other people. But to promote the goodness found in other people is to act morally and virtuously, and sometimes self-sacrificially. The unity between all people on both the natural and the supernatural level hence explains how agape can be self-sacrificial without in any way contradicting the erotic quest for one's own happiness. A person who only cares for himself neglects a big part of his own goodness, namely the part that is present in other people. So I will stay there and open up for questions. Thank you for listening.